I'm Annette Altmans, and I'm founder, I'm founder of the MEND Project. Um, I'd like to point to two people in the room. Jill, right here, raise your hand. If you have any questions or want extra materials at the conclusion of the presentation, please see her. And Stephanie, she can answer your questions also. And I will remain after to answer any content questions that you may have. Um, I'm not a psychologist. I'm a survivor. I'm a content creator, and I've been conducting qualitative research for years by interviewing more than 100 victims, 100 pastors, and 100 therapists. The purpose of my presentation this morning is to provide an overview of what abuse is, the covert type of emotional abuse, and the secondary layer of double abuse that is most difficult to identify and which is present in nearly every form of abuse. At times, I will be using male pronouns to refer to abusers and female pronouns to refer to victims, but abusers come in all shapes and sizes, male, female, ra different races, ethnicities, um, socioeconomic backgrounds, and all sexual orientations. Many of you volunteer or work in your church. You pour your heart into others. You often work long hours or volunteer without pay. You may be a professional or lay counselor. In either case, you find yourself being expected to know everything about every crisis and that, that, people, you know, that people bring to you. Our hope is that even if you don't want to become an expert in, on matters of abuse, you'll feel more equipped and able to respond in a healing way towards victims. You'll be more capable of assessing what abuse looks like when, you, when it comes your way, and you'll feel more emboldened to confront it when, you, when it comes into light. Let's um, take a look at a short two-minute video on our work and why we use the Japanese art of kintsugi to, to help tell our stories. porcelain or china and it is broken it's not trashed it's recovered it's put back together and through that love and craft of healing like kintsugi you take a piece that had been traumatized and broken put it back together and it actually becomes a much more beautiful piece a much stronger piece like a piece of kintsugi china or kintsugi porcelain
With current stories that are popping up in the news on an almost daily basis regarding widespread abuse in several professional categories or communities, and that which the Me Too movement has done an extraordinary job in raising awareness about to help strengthen victims' voices, these are in matters such as um, sexual abuse, sexual harassment and rape, domestic violence, and the cultural silencing of victims. In all of these, there are two main themes that are present in every, nearly every example, and yet we aren't hearing about it. The first is covert emotional abuse, and the second is a term that I've trademarked called double abuse. The first, covert emotional abuse, refers to the hidden manipulative tactics and behaviors that are hard to describe, they're hard to name, and therefore they're nearly impossible to confront. Covert emotional abuse is present in all forms of abuse. The second is what I have named double abuse. When victims finally find the courage to reach out for help, and rather than be believed, they are doubted, they are criticized, they are asked pointed questions. Um, rather than receiving compassion, they're often judged, and this silences them. And they're often even ostracized or shunned from their families, their church, or their professional communities. Both covert emotional abuse and double abuse are an epidemic in our society, but we aren't hearing them being named in public or in media circles. And how can we stop what doesn't have a name? I'd like to show you a short video about Katie. Um, listen carefully to what Katie describes as an all-too-common story. My name is Katie Cusimano, and I work for Alpha, which is a nonprofit with the faith-based ministry, and it teaches the introductory course. Can you turn it up? No. a very different person to the public and behind closed doors. 
spiritual like advisor and telling her a bit of a bit of what was going on and I was told that I just needed to pray and go home and be real submissive and make it work. And this was the decision that I made. So growing up in the Midwest in a conservative Christian home, divorce was just a taboo thing. And I didn't see an option and I didn't have a physical scar on me, um, and I didn't see any way out. A lot of people aren't educated with emotional and verbal abuse, and it can come across like someone's, the person that's being abused is like complaining or being too sensitive or overdramatic, and I feel like that's what a lot of people perceived it as. I wish I could have had wider counsel in certain situations. Um, and for people to be educated on how to handle this properly because it did more damage than good. And even for my ex-husband, it turned him probably farther away from the church even more so because of seeing how people handled the situation and the advice that they gave him wasn't the healthiest for us. Um, and as a woman in the church, too, told, being told to like, oh, you want is really hard. Our goal through this presentation is to embody Ephesians 5, 12 through 13, to bring all matters into the light, even the unspeakable, even the shameful, the embarrassing, the taboo, the stigmatized topics, because that then which is illuminated can then become a light. What do emotional abuse, cyberbullying, sexual harassment, child molestation, workplace sabotage, or intimate partner violence, and so on, all have in common? The answer is the insidious layers of covert emotional abuse. According to numerous studies, as well as the Center for Disease Control, covert emotional abuse is considered one of the most destructive forms of abuse in terms of emotion, the emotional and physiological harm that it causes. Overt emotional abuse, on the other hand, the yelling, the name-calling, spitting, that sort of thing, is more easy to identify because when it happens, someone can say, this isn't right, something is wrong about this situation. It helps them connect, it helps the victim connect that this, something isn't correct in this situation when covert emotional abuse is far more confusing. But what are some specific covert emotional abusive behaviors? Let's take a look at a few examples. The first one I like to raise is blaming and reverse blaming. Because you raise a complaint or a concern, and in blaming, issues are always one-sided, or the problem gets turned around on you. 
So the responsibility for the disagreement at, it always lands at the victim's feet. Deflection, defensively refusing to authentically communicate, changing the topic, inventing false arguments. You might also call it stonewalling. Gaslighting, altering or denying a mutually shared experience so that the victim feels they are wrong in their perception and wrong in their reality. Did I remember that correctly? How can, I be, how can I get this entire thing wrong? Am I not communicating? Well, is he, how, he's like, it's almost as though you believe that they are smarter and more aware of the surroundings than, than what you are, the victim is. Denial, a fundamental refusal to accept responsibility by living in a false reality. Sharon mentioned at the opening that sometimes it's conscious, sometimes it's unconscious. Denial is often unconscious. It can be intentional in a, to a degree. It can be deviant, intermixed with a low emotional IQ. I use the acronym, don't even know I'm a liar to myself. Minimization, abusive belittling of the victim's perspective. The intention is to make what the victim values unimportant and therefore kill confidence, kill creativity, and even individuality. I like to point out um, in the word minimization, it might seem benign at times, um, but if we consider an example between parent and child, I think you'll feel differently about it. Um, I like. Um, to use the example that when a child comes to you over the holidays and says, mom or dad, I don't like uncle so-and-so, rather than stopping and sitting down and say, trying to understand why you don't like uncle so-and-so, the parent will often say things like, oh honey, just give him a hug and be nice, you only have to see him over the holidays. This is minimization and that stops the conversation. So if anything more is, if the child is being molested by uncle so-and-so, you are not going to hear about it with that kind of a response. You are going to tell, you are telling the child that you're not interested in hearing more, that it's going to be pressuresome for them to tell you more, and it raises their anxiety, so they, they just shut down. But also with minimization, it's important to note in children, they need adults to help build their confidence and to validate that their internal sense of awareness is, is right. So when they have a feeling, a gut feeling about something, it's really important to validate that feeling, talk it through with them, and because our feelings, we're allowed to feel what we feel, and so they need to have help in growing confidence in, on their internal barometer, and only adults can really, some children are gifted and they, and they will be confident anyways, but most children require adult interaction to develop that good sense of self and confidence. Withholding. Withholding is one of the most toxic forms of abuse. A refusal to communicate, um, a refusal to have any kind of touch or affection, a refusal to listen or rejoice. This, this is really important, it can be so subtle. A refusal to rejoice in one's good ideas or good fortunes. They have a success and they just 
find something to criticize about it. Any one of these behaviors repeated in a pattern is enough to be destructive to a relationship. Let's take lying, for example. If somebody lies all the time, it destroys a relationship. If somebody minimizes you all the time, it destroys a relationship. But the more behaviors that come into play, the more that are employed, the more toxic, confusing, and traumatizing. The victim of these types of behaviors usually works much harder at the relationship to have fulfilling and authentic conversations, but her efforts all mostly lead to dead ends. Let's look at the maze. I like to consider a maze as representative of a conversation. A healthy conversation has a beginning, a middle, and an end. You enter a conversation and you mutually collaborate, you listen, you, want, you have a desire for mutual understanding, and then you move to solutions. But an unhealthy conversation, one where covert emotional abuse is present, is full of dead ends. You will, um, you know, the, when the opposite occurs, there's usually, let me, I'm sorry. When the opposite occurs, there are usually the victim is usually totally unaware that they are trying to communicate with someone so broken that abuse and control is their matrix and reciprocity is impossible to attain. Victims can languish in these types of relationships for years as their stress and trauma increases and as their health becomes compromised. And the reason they languish in these relationships for years is because when multiple behaviors are employed, they can't possibly track all of what is happening. It's like I said before, if someone's constantly lying, a person can have an aha moment and say, He's, he lies. There's a serious integrity problem. They're able to catch the pattern. But when multiple behaviors are employed, it's too confusing. And her stress begins to rise and her confusion increases. And so this is what I call traumatic states and prolonged traumatic states of stressful confusion. Covertly abusive people can be the most charming, successful, even philanthropic, but what are their motives for being so? For being one way in public and another way in private. Their motives are what I call image management. They manage their image to the public. So in some ways they're acutely aware of how they're portraying themselves in a public to receive positive affirmation, but it breaks down in private. So what are their motives? for manipulating on the inside of their most intimate relationships. Sometimes it's intentional to oppress, to power over and control, while other times their motives are to avoid authentic emotional connections and conversations. They're so unaware of their own emotions, they're so un underdeveloped, they have such a low emotional IQ, they could be brilliant, they could graduate from the top Ivy League schools but not have a high emotional IQ, and so they want to avoid being seen. Emotion actually gives them anxiety, and so they avoid it. They, they, all of those deflective things that you see here, they, they'll do any, they do anything to keep the conversation from becoming authentic, where they ha have to actually be in touch with their emotions. They're likely to possibly cry at kind of inappropriate times. So if you're, if you're counseling a couple, he may seem like the weepy one and, over, and sensitive. So it's hard to imagine he's the insensitive one because he's showing tears. And she may seem very 
aloof and cool because she's her by expressing her authentic emotions they have been met with such criticism that now she's guarding herself and she's not revealing it so it can appear very confusing when you're counseling these couples um, regardless of the motives behind it it is very harmful it's also important to name these behaviors because for most of us when we become aware of them, we work immediately to change. I mean, we all can do these things on, from time to time and not be aware of it. We learned it in our family or early friendships or whatever. But when we're confronted with it, a healthy person says, oh my goodness, I had no idea that minimization would harm my child. I'm going to stop that immediately. I just didn't understand. You know, it, it takes one time and you immediately change. For an abusive person, you can repeat these things and they don't change. They'll say, I'm sorry, but they won't, they won't change. When we do change, it leads to healthier families, healthier churches, and communities. Those who are hardened in and an entrenched and faulty belief system won't be able to change without experiencing these things. Long-standing accountability, specific and frequent confrontation that's it's not vague it's very specific you said you were going to call her at six o'clock you didn't call her at six o'clock you called her at six ten. you called her at seven o'clock it's holding to specific accountability and they usually have to experience significant pain and loss like a marital separation or something worse they are more likely to double down, to reverse the blame, and often recruit others to join in a persuasive plan to scapegoat or gaslight a victim. This does not just happen between individuals. This happens in group settings, and we'll touch on that a little later, like in institutional settings or in organizational settings or in friendship circles. You have a handout in your folder with several more definitions, and our website provides an extensive list. Anything that I'm talking about today, any of our models, you can find on our website and you can download them um, for free in a PDF um, form. You may find that you can even add to this list because no two abusive situations are exactly the same. Why is covert emotional abuse so harmful? What I learned in my research after initially interviewing more than 100 survivors of covert emotional abuse and many more since then was that clarity is the first necessary step to healing. Nearly every victim I interviewed clung to whatever piece of literature or newspaper article or story they had found along their journey that described any part of their experience. They kept it in their purse or he kept it in his wallet like it was you know, a Bible verse or something very meaningful from you know, scripture that um, they were they were anxious, even frantic, to show it to me. They would say things like they would pull it out and say, this thing right here, this is what was being done to me, but I couldn't find the words to describe it. And they literally would show it to a therapist, show it to a friend. It was their validation that what they were experiencing was harmful. This is why providing a list of terminology has been so freeing for people who are experiencing abuse because it begins to define and give names and definitions to their experiences. 
What also stood out to me was that each victim was held hostage in prolonged states of stressful confusion or trauma, what are known as trauma states, which I just mentioned. And sadly, often after years of therapy, this often still, still was the case. Because um, many therapists have not taken extra uh, continuing education units on abuse. And in their primary academic studies, they don't always receive very many hours to cover the topic. So what happens is a layperson assumes that a therapist is going to be able to diagnose all these sorts of communication problems when they haven't yet been trained to do so. So it's really important to shop around for an expert in, in this area, or at least to describe some of the specific experiences that they're having before they settle on a therapist. Living in such unremitting states, unnecessarily extending their suffering, contributed to developing recurring or what's called cumulative post-traumatic stress disorder. This advanced state of stress leaves them incredibly vulnerable to diseases and more severe forms of trauma. When they were able to see that they were being mistreated, a significant light bulb went on. They began to be able to organize their confusion, subsequently then calm some of their trauma symptoms, and at a point, um, it actually, they actually, it, it um, sped up their healing process. Because trying to hold on to all the confusion in your mind is, is very stressful. So when you can organize that, it's like, it just drops significantly. So um, what I, I strongly recommend using the tool that you have in your packets to help somebody identify what they're experiencing. And once they realize what they're experiencing, at that point, a more appropriate form of stress, a more accurate form of stress enters the scene. The shocking reality that they are dealing with a person who has an entirely different worldview but at least now they have a sense of reality and can begin to make necessary decisions. No matter how emotionally intelligent a person is, if they haven't learned the language, they cannot make sense of their situation. Until they have gained clarity, they are unaware that abuse is what they are experiencing. Instead, they walk around bewildered asking, am I crazy? Am I unlovable? Why am I always wrong? Why can't we solve our communication problems? or what is it that I'm missing? I'm bright, I'm learning, I try what I'm being taught, and it's not working. Aristotle reminds us that the first law of logic is identifying. Every macro and micro culture in our society has different beliefs and opinions about abuse, but proper, proper definitions are not subjective. Society as a whole needs to accept what is true about abuse and then change our thinking in the way we respond to it. Accepting the correct language and accepting the correct and accurate protocols and bringing them into the light is what I believe will be the vehicle for lasting change. For example, bullying is still considered to many to be a rite of passage, but in fact for years studies and governmental agencies have named its devastating effects on the psyche of children. Stories continue to pour in about how parents, teachers, or administrators intentionally or inadvertently minimize the abuse on their campuses or refuse to follow correct protocols that will properly help both victim and abuser. 
Many communities across the country still consider domestic violence to be solely physical violence, when in fact, the Center for Disease Control and numerous scholarly studies for years have described domestic violence in much broader, definite, much broader terms with an emphasis on emotional abuse due to the significant physical, physical harm that emotional abuse causes. If society does not respect what experts define as abusive, then how do we stop it? At the MEN Project, we strive to take these seemingly complex behaviors and contradictions in society and simplify them. In our trainings, we step into communities and compassionately and carefully address the cultural blind spots or faulty beliefs within that community. Every church, every neighborhood, every organization has different blind spots. And we don't come in and confront them. We try to help create a safe environment where we can, where those who are in the environment can safely analyze what those blind spots may be. We encourage self-examination and provide encouragement and tools for change. We each don't need to become experts at every form of abuse, but we do need to know what abuse is if we are to create systemic change. We also need to be free to talk openly about it and to understand the common threads found in every form of abuse. We believe this will not only serve to empower victims, but to strengthen families, communities, and sustain the groundswell moment that we have right now in this time in history. I experienced years of covert emotional abuse. He did not hit me or call me names, but I was not treated kindly or as, an as my own individual or as an equal in our marriage. We sought help from numerous therapists, but none was trained or capable to name or make sense of what was happening to me. Because there were no broken bones or bruises, they did not name abuse. And after years of suffering trauma caused by combined increasing stress and confusion, isolated and unresolved, I developed cumulative post-traumatic stress disorder and my health began to rapidly deteriorate. I developed autoimmune diabetes, Lyme disease, a dangerously low white blood count, which made it nearly, um, made it, which made it difficult for me to fight infections or bacterias and I also developed unexplained fluctuating low blood pressure. These conditions sent me to the emergency room by ambulance more than 13 times. I finally concluded that in order to take care of my body, even though I didn't know what was technically happening, that I was in an abusive relationship, I, had, I knew I had to stop couples therapy because it wasn't helping, and I knew I had to separate from my husband. I confided in longtime lay leaders of my couples Bible study group to ask them for one thing, to please encourage my husband to agree to an accountability partner. And then I said I would do anything if he would do that one thing. But those who I thought cared for me did not comfort me. They condemned me for my decision to separate from my husband. They shunned me and they asked others in the community, in the Christian community, to do the same in their effort to force me back into couples therapy. They felt that was what was the right decision. Their responses interfered with what would have been the proper intervention. And instinctively, I knew I needed to stop, but I didn't understand that couples therapy is strictly contraindicated. That means prohibited in all abuse cases. It is in the Board of Behavioral Sciences, board of, uh, their protocols. It's in the Board of Psychology's protocols. But if a therapist 
or a pastor hasn't been trained in abuse, the pastor will refer abuse couples to couples therapy and the couples therapist will not realize that they aren't to be seeing the couple together. They need to be in separate, with separate counselors and then those counselors um, collaborate together. And they need to identify, they need to name the specifics of the abuse. Um, the same is true for bullying. We cannot place the bully and the victim in the same room. And sadly, that is a protocol that's available on all of the anti-bullying government websites, but administrators continue to, to um, practice this, placing them in the same room. My couple's um, Bible study leaders' poor treatment of me exacerbated my recurring and cumulative post-traumatic stress disorder into what is called complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Complex post-traumatic stress is not yet in the DSM-5, but it has been a proposed diagnosis for, for more than 15 years, and it is a legitimate diagnosis. Um, it takes a minimum of five years to heal and multiple mo modalities to, um, for this treatment. And as pastors and as lay leaders and as counselors, we need to understand that complex post-traumatic stress exists because when somebody has post complex post-traumatic stress, did I say that right? When someone has post-traumatic stress, they are extra vulnerable to exacerbating to complex post-traumatic stress. It, it can just happen in a day, a week, a month of, of that double abuse layer, and then they're they are going to be experiencing a much more significant form of trauma that is so difficult to, to intervene and help. The medical and emotional trauma significantly de delayed my path towards healing, and worse, it emboldened my husband in his faulty thinking. There's life-giving power in our responses to the abused. Many of us have made these mistakes. And if you have an authentic apology towards mending those wounds, even if it's years later, goes a long way for the, for the one who's been wronged. I realized that I was part of a, gen, a system of gender bias that attempted to keep me in this controlled environment where marriage is mostly the sole responsibility to, of the woman. And it was also an environment where both men and women in this toxic patriarchal culture were inf aggressively going to enforce it. After a three-year separation and very hard work, my husband and I were able to reconcile. He was able to receive proper interventions by numerous intensives with an expert therapist and he had a trained accountability partner. Today he will tell you that the actions of those prior spiritual leaders had emboldened his feelings of entitlement rather than help confront his abuse or broaden his awareness. But now he is a big supporter of the MEN Project. Whether bullying, domestic violence, or child molestation, victims need compassion, confidentiality, and they need support. Perpetrators or abusers, on the other hand, need firm accountability and support only in their efforts to change. So it's okay to support a perpetrator, but you can't say, well, I'm gonna take, I'm gonna take your spouse, your abusive spouse out to lunch to try to like 
get him or her to confide in me and to like befriend him, that would not be healthy. If you are going to support them in their specific steps towards cha change, then that's a different story. You can say, if it's a man, friend, it may be your friend. I'll stand with you as long as you are actively changing. But if you are not, then I will be colluding in the abuse and I refuse to collude in the maltreatment that you're imposing on your spouse. I was also closely positioned to a story of child molestation where the matriarch of the abuser's side of the family chose to interfere with proper interventions. The victim's half of the family chose to believe the child and at the same time wanted healing for the abuser. They were um, minors, but they were six years apart. The abuser's side of the family had a culture where allegiance to the matriarch was more important than the moral obligation to validate the minor child. And the matriarch didn't want any sexual consequences um, you know, that could potentially be lifelong consequences imposed on the abuser. So she interfered. She obstructed justice. The family who witnessed this said things like, we don't want to choose sides. We don't know who to believe. If it doesn't concern our immediate family unit, it's none of our business. Even some said, get over it. It's no big deal. It happens eventually to everybody. But Bonhoeffer says, silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. There is no neutrality in abuse. Neutrality favors the abuser. The lack of compassion the victim received and the severe break in the extended family structure resulted in emotional and immunological collapse. She was sent to the emergency room 11 times from unexplained fluctuating blood pressure before she was moved to a trauma facility, and she then was placed on medical leave from school for over a year. What effect did this have on the other side of the equation? The abuser. The way his family responded, refusing to allow proper interventions, unnecessarily sent the abuser into a downward cycle of unresolved guilt, shame, confusion, and his own isolation from family members. He was deprived of the proper intervention and reparation opportunities that would have and could have taken place to bring about healing. Today, both victim and abuser will say, that the family's response ostracized them both, exacerbated both of their trauma, and significantly detoured the courses of their lives. The guilty party subsequently was in and out of jail for more than 18 times before turning his life around. They have since reconciled. They, they don't, the two sides of this family don't socialize together anymore, um, but the two victims have been able to have a conversation that has been mutually compassionate. Yeah, which is, it's, it was amazing to witness that. So, Annette, I hate to interrupt you, but you said the uh, victims need compassion, and I didn't get the other two that you, you listed just before you just started that story. Then you said the abuser needs, needs support to change, but not affirmation. 
the abuser, it's so often I see um, friends or even pastors and even therapists who say they want to, um, they don't want to have, to, they don't want to confront. I'm not paid to confront. Um, I'm paid to be compassionate. So they don't even want to confront and hold a, an abuser accountable. You can be compassionate to an abuser as long as you are seeing him make specific exacting change. Not change that he's inventing in his mind, oh, I've changed, but the specific change that the victim needs to, to happen. You can support him in those efforts. But if you come alongside of him and it's not attached to a specific demand or accountability, then you're just colluding with the abuser and it re-traumatizes the victim. Does that make sense? Victims need compassion confidentiality yes they and so I, I'll even take that a step further Lundy Bancroft in his renowned books on abuse he says it this way you hold confidentiality for the victim but you don't hold confidentiality for the perpetrator because you have to check the story um, with the victim to see if if he or she is experiencing change but you cannot break confidentiality of the victim because the perpetrator doesn't hold, he doesn't hold value in confidentiality. He doesn't hold value in being compassionate and safe. He's not a safe individual, so you, you can't do that. So it feels contra to, your, to what normal protocol would be to, con to break confidentiality on one hand and to hold it on the other, but in cases of abuse, it's what's required. Thank you for that. Um, we are not talking about hurt feelings, we're talking about real harm. Henry Cloud says there is a big difference between hurt and harm. We all hurt sometimes in facing hard truths, but it makes us grow. That is not harmful. Harm is when you damage someone. And that's another thing to keep in mind. The perpetrator is really only feeling hurt, which is what he needs. The victim is being harmed, and there is a big difference. Facing into one's bad behavior and reparations is healthy hurt. It is what abusers need to feel in order to grow and change. Harm is trauma. Harm is physiological damage and compromised immune systems. What was becoming clear to me through my personal experience and the experiences of those around me, whether in academia, the medical profession, the worlds of entertainment, finance, sports, churches, politics, social media, was the epidemic that has existed here since the beginning of time. Each way we turn, we can see forms of covert emotional abuse, first in the originating abuse or the originating harm, and then again in the double abuse caused either by cultural blindness or preferential treatment for favored individuals. Look at recent media accounts of Hollywood's widespread collusion and for years protection of Harvey Weinstein and also Michigan State University and um, the Olympic Committee's protection of Larry Nassar. There are countless layers of apathy and collusion that played into silencing victims. Until very recently, there have been broad-based protection of priests um, in the Catholic Church. How do I want to say this? These protections have silenced victims. 
And until very recently, with the Me Too movement, um, even people like community leaders, lawyers, and judges were protecting the, the um, Catholic priests. It was a systemic problem, in, particularly in areas like Boston. And we saw that with the movie Spotlight. They were more concerned with protecting the institution than the individuals they served. The one example that we often see in the church is the idolization of the institution of marriage rather than caring for the victim and children's well-being inside the marriage. Why have all these devastating forms of abuse been ignored and covered up in our modern-day, educated, wealthy, first-world society? The answer lies in what I have conceptualized as double abuse. When victims finally find the courage to speak out about their experience or reach out for help, they're mostly minimized, ignored, judged, and shunned. I said that before. Preferential treatment is freely given to the abuser rather than the victims. When victims choose not to speak out, media often, we've all heard this, media will report, she didn't want to lose her position on the gymnastics team, or she didn't want to lose her job on the news show, whatever it is. But what they fail to say is that by speaking out, she instinctively knows that she risks losing far more than that. She fears double abuse. She may lose the support of her family, the support of her friends, or become ostracized by her entire professional community. She risks losing her life as she knows it, and she instinctively knows that such responses will be far more traumatizing and she won't be able to tolerate that trauma. If you take one point away from this morning, understand this. It is the double abuse that holds up all other forms of abuse. By doubly abusing victims when they come forward, we keep abuse in the shadows where it thrives. I like to think of abuse like an iceberg. The original abuse is the part of the iceberg that is understood to be abusive. We all know that rape is abusive, sexual assault is abusive, bullying is abusive. But the unseen part of the iceberg, the larger and more dangerous part that sunk the Titanic, that is the double abuse that holds up all these other forms. It's our blindness, it's our apathy, our ignorance, our victim blaming, our prejudices, our preferential treatment to our favorite friends, or so on. The point of disclosure in a victim's story is what will determine whether she will begin to heal and mend or whether her trauma will be exacerbated into learned hopelessness and despair. Post-traumatic stress, when treated with compassion, can be healed in a relatively short period of time. But when the victim experiences double abuse, like I mentioned, it exacerbates their trauma into co complex post-traumatic stress. And this complex post-traumatic stress, I need to point out, sets in motion a biochemical, involuntary, musculoskeletal chain of events that may result in an unusual number of medical problems. As a sidebar, it's important to note that as horrific as complex post-traumatic stress is, there is a large group of psychiatrists and psychologists, a consortium, who are promoting a new diagnosis that more accurately will represent the developmentally aged child called um, developmental trauma disorder. It's not yet in the DSM-5, but it has also been proposed for nearly 20 years, and so eventually I believe that it will make it in. And the, I don't know if you've heard of the ACES study, the Adverse Childhood Experiences study conducted by Kaiser Permanente and the Center for Disease Control. 
but it supports this idea that complex trauma in the developmentally aged child leads to lifelong health um, problems and even early death. Consider this example from a woman who recently emailed us about abuse and double abuse she endured. My health is failing. I've had 14 surgeries in four years' time, tons of autoimmune diseases, yet my doctors won't help with an intervention. I'm in desperate need of help, and he, my husband, is using my health against me, and I don't want my children taken away. The time is now to start taking covert emotional abuse seriously, and our roles as first responders even more seriously. And we are all first responders, right? We are mothers. We are fathers, we are sisters, we are brothers, we are colleagues, we are friends, we are dentists, we are doctors, we are lawyers, and so on. We are pastors. The rise of cyberbullying, for example, is not a rise in physical violence, it's a rise in covert emotional abuse. The third leading cause of death in children is suicide, and most are attributed to some form of bullying. In my research, I read 200 narratives of suicide um, with a bullying or, or origin. And what I found was that it was mostly what was present in nearly every, 97% of the stories was what was present was that the child didn't receive the proper intervention. So there was double abuse present in every story. The Me Too Church two times up in silence is not spiritual movements are empowering victims of abuse, giving them a voice to describe their abusive experiences. But we need to come alongside these movements to go further yet. We need lawyers to be educated on the terminology to then implement it into their cases. We need authors of reputable studies on trauma and abuse to be called as expert witnesses in order to establish precedence in cases. We need universities to share research findings between different disciplines. We need MFTs, psychologists, psychiatrists, and social workers to not assume that they know how to diagnose abuse, but to follow their board protocols and to learn about abuse and to enthusiastically embrace um, you know, continuing education units in this topic. We need to not succumb to the stigma and the taboos by avoiding discussing these topics or avoiding interventions regarding abuse or post-traumatic stress. I should stop and say post-traumatic stress is very unattractive. It's easy to avoid. It, I, instinctively, we want to avoid it. It's annoying, frankly, to have to interface with somebody with post-traumatic stress because they're, they're fluctuating between anger and terror and tears and sometimes fragmented communication. They're not able to get all of their communication out the way that you would think a person would. And they do appear temporarily like they're going a little crazy. But if you sit with them and you stay with them, you actually help their healings. You help um, speed up their healing process. We need also for men to embrace the topic. There's too few men, I'm so happy to see men in this room, but there's too often too few men who are willing to discuss um, their own stigmas in, in this area, either that you know more abuse cases are men towards women, but on the other side of the coin, men who are abused feel too stigmatized to talk about it as well. 
We need women to be more safe, and we all need to be more compassionate. I started the MEN Project to educate, equip, and restore all those impacted by original and double abuse. We train first responders how to do no further harm, how to be trauma sensitive, and this means responding with compassion rather than condemnation. It's important to note that compassion is not subjective to victims. I mean, often I talk to people and they say, well, I was compassionate. I told her what to do, but she just didn't listen to me. That's not compassion. It is very specific, and it's a very specific and defined set of responses. In your folders and um, on the PowerPoint and also on our website, you'll find a copy of our healing model of compassion. As we've stated, we know that we cannot all be experts in the fields of trauma and abuse, but by incorporating just a few basics into our lives, our homes, our churches, and our communities, and our institutions as a protocol, <clears throat> all of us will feel knowledgeable enough because we will, at least we can have an inter interaction and interface with these victims without doing further harm. We can promote healing and end double abuse. So let's take a look at a little bit of what that is. Listen. Listen with a closed mouth over and over again. Like I mentioned earlier, a child will come forward, but if you don't meet them with a listening ear, they won't tell you the full story. It might take them a week to tell you. It might take them several months. It might take two years for them to finally come out and tell you fully what happened. So often I think people think, oh, a child's going to run to you after something happens. It's, it's not like that. They're ashamed, and they want to feel like it is safe. Um, believe, accept, believe the experience to be true. Statistics show that 97% are telling the truth. Don't instruct or interrogate with pointed or leading questions. Asking questions spikes anxiety and trauma. Empathize, put yourself in the other's shoes. Don't reject or criticize personal choice. I chose to separate. They should have just accepted my decision instead of guilting me, like the Bible says, you're not supposed to separate and all the pressure that was imposed upon me. I was actually doing the correct protocol. Validate, mirror back what you understand. What I'm hearing you saying is this. And then say, if that is happening, my goodness, you have every reason to feel this way. Don't undermine, circumvent, or oppose. Like, oh, that's, you know, like, don't judge whether it should be upsetting to them or not. Just validate them. That's what they need. There's no harm in validating someone. And if you're afraid that someone's lying, still do, still practice these, this model, because it will come out in time. But the damage of you thinking that and assuming that in the early part of the discussion is far more risky than if you find out that there was a lie later down in the conversation. There's no harm in believing. There's a lot of harm in doubting. Identify, find your parallel experience without hijacking the conversation. So you can say something like, gosh, this reminds me of something I experienced several years ago. And I can only imagine what you're feeling. But don't you know, say, oh, well, let me tell you what happened to me, and then turn it into an entirely different conversation. And don't deny their own personhood. Trust and believe their voice. Usually they are very accurate. Usually so much has happened before they finally have the courage to speak up that there's a lot there and there's a lot of validity. 
and then encourage, offer support on their path. I, know, I believe in you. I know you're going to get through this. Don't shun or place conditions or ask others to join in double abuse. And the only question that I recommend asking is, can I get resources for you? Or how can I help you? I think a lot of people are afraid to ask the question, how can I help you? But what's the worst that can happen? Will you just meet with me once a week? I just need someone to talk to. Will you come with me to court? If they need you to go to court, it's a very important thing to do for them, to go to court with them. And if you've witnessed abuse, it's very important to testify and to be willing to do that. Don't withdraw or disconnect or avoid, because disconnection actually exacerbates their trauma. So often we try to fix the problem in a codependent sort of way, but the healing model that I'm talking about here is actually God's way, and it's a much easier path. I mean, think about it. You're not having to offer advice. You don't have to know the answers. You just have to be a good listener. And by being a good listener, you're actually a, um, a healing balm to their trauma. Excuse me. Lastly, we recognize that abusers are in desperate need of healing as well. But many don't realize it or want to admit it and don't want to, and don't want to go through it. But we have developed a protocol model for responding to them. And you'll see this on the back side of, your, of the healing model of compassion. In order to partner with abusers, authentic, you know, their authentic efforts to change, we don't want to partner with them, like I said, if they're not changing. We need for men to understand abuse and how toxic patriarchy can often foster faulty beliefs and entitlement for there to be any um, lasting change. There needs to be confrontation and ongoing accountability in order for tried and true empathy to be developed. We don't want to talk about an, do I, am I out of time? Yeah, sorry. Okay, that's all right. That's okay. You can see the healing model. Um, I just want to say that if, you, if you'd like to connect with us, please come and see one of us. We'd love to connect with you. I want to thank you for your interest so much because we need more people to be interested in this topic. And most importantly, I want to um, really thank you for having a heart for other people. Have a blessed day. Mm -hmm.